Welcome to Hannah's Heart. So Hannah, she's just one of the women who did struggle with infertility in the Bible. No matter who we are, we can be inspired by the fact that Hannah took her pain to God and God heard her and was with her. So when she was praying at the temple, she had been weeping and not eating and her lips were moving, but her eyes were closed and the priest was like, why are you drunk at the temple? Because yeah. it can become an obsession when you want Wanting a child so deeply. And desiring that baby and to be a mama. Every holiday, every Mother's Day. This is not a show that's going to promise you a certain outcome. But this is a show that says, however God answers your cry, we know that He's enough. Hey, I'm Ann. And I'm Kendra. And you're here today with us on Hannah's Heart. We're for the first time recording in studio. Yes, video um, streaming as well, which right. you can watch on our streaming platform, afastreaming.net. Yeah, we're super excited about that. If you haven't ever listened in before and you're just catching us today for the first time, we are a podcast radio show that's um, about to help couples who are mm-hmm. struggling with infertility, miscarriage. But we've kind of grown to more than that. We've covered adoption. Mm-hmm. We've covered child loss. We've covered foster care. Um, so we kind of hit on all kinds of ways that God chooses to grow your family. Mm-hmm. That's right. And today we have a really special guest and an interesting topic that I'm excited to jump into. So this month is Sanctity of Human Life um, month, and a lot of churches are celebrating Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Um, at AFA, of course, we believe that life begins at conception. Um, but we wanted to discuss um, how does that belief that life begins at conception, um, how do you pair that with a world of fertility treatments and couples that do struggle with infertility? We've talked a lot about my journey on the show and my struggles to figure out, are there ways to do this that are God honoring? Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but back when um, the Roe v. Wade reversal happened, there was uh, right before it and after it, there was a lot of news stories about um, IVF is going to be outlawed. And there was a lot of like those evil pro-lifers and Republicans are trying to rip families apart. And, um, you know, so the question remains, is is there any truth to that? Are right, there any people right. that are trying to outlaw Because it did confuse me when I saw that. I was like, whoa, right. what? What are they talking about? And, uh, you know, so you're like uh, kind of a question that we're going to discuss today um, is can you be pro-life, um, a Christian, and believe in IVF? And it's, of course, not Ann and I's job or even our guest's job Mm -mm. to to decide what is right and best for your family. We encourage you to go dig into the Word of God to solve those answers. But what I do think is important is that we understand the science behind these treatments and what kind of um, decisions we might have to make when it comes to legislative issues. Because there are some bills right now to um, try to preserve so that... um, to protect some of the, the treatments that are in place. So anyways, all of that being said, our guest today is Dr. John David Gordon. He's the medical director of Southeastern Fertility, and he has been doing this for a number of years, helping couples build their family. Um, and uh, also, I will mention, he happens to be the doctor that helped Eric and I um, get our Yay. beautiful little girl, Eliana. So Dr. That's Gordon, right. welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's so great to be with you guys. Well, before we launch into this crazy topic, um, I want to thank you for your work um, and everything that you do um, with both the NEDC, the National Embryo Donation Center, and the um, 
the clinic that you work with at Southeastern, uh, Eric and I, we searched for a really long time to try to find someone who honored our values and would listen to our questions. And I rem- I don't know if you remember our initial in-office consult with you when I grilled you for an hour of questions. Do you remember that day? I do. I do. <laughs> you were so kind. And we had previously had a lot of... Um, poor experiences with clinics that just kind of brushed our concerns to the side and wouldn't answer those questions. And I really appreciated that one, you knew the answers <laughs> to our questions. Yeah. And you even said, you said, you're asking all the right questions. And he said, most people don't even know to ask these questions. So um, I, I also was pleasantly surprised to find in your clinic several books about four couples that are struggling with infertility that point um, people that are of faith, not that your clinic um, only services Christians, but um, really pointing couples that do have that background to cling to the Lord to help them through the difficult season of infertility. So it made us feel very comfortable working with you. So thank you for that. You're so welcome. Um, before we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about um, why you feel led into this calling of helping couples and um, why you're passionate about your work there? Well, I mean, to work with couples struggling with infertility, of course, is really just a, a blessing. Um, it's, it's an emotionally difficult field for, for couples. I mean, most, most individuals think that as soon as they start trying, you know, they'll be able to have their family exactly how they want it. And, and all of a sudden, you know, for a young, healthy person to be confronted with the realities of something not happening the way that they think that it should is, is really um, is really surprising for so many. And so I think that, you know, to be called to work in this field, um, it is a wonderful field. I mean, it's a happy field. Um, and, and ultimately, there are so many paths to parenthood that, that patients can pursue, and whether it's through just diagnostic testing or minimal fertility treatment or in vitro fertilization or embryo adoption or traditional adoption. I mean, there are so many paths to parenting that, that individuals can pursue. And so I think that it's important to remember that. And um, as a believer, you have to also struggle saying, well, why, why are we where we are? And, you know, are we, are we called to reach out to get help or are we supposed to just assume that that this is the will of God for us and that we, we won't do any type of treatment and everything in between. And I think that's, um, that's why, you know, to me, it's, it's a fantastic field to work in. I'm, I'm in my 28th year of practice, wow. and I've been here in Knoxville for, for three years or three and a half years since 2019. Mm. Well, let's jump into this crazy um, current debate since living in a post-Roe v. Wade reversal world. Why was there so much attention to fertility treatments around um, this legal decision? Yeah, Dr. Keenan and I, Dr. Keenan uh, is the founder of the NEDC along with the Christian Medical Dental Association. Uh, he and I have had these discussions saying, I don't know where you would immediately jump from Roe v. Wade being thrown back to the states to being all of a sudden IVF is going to be illegal across <laughs> the country. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I just never would have connected the dots personally in terms of that. And in fact, um, two of the documents I provided you with were from the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, um, specifically stating, and you run through each of the states that had trigger laws, and every single state it said no impact expected on the practice of ART or IVF. 
So the American Society of Reproductive Medicine itself, in two separate documents, has sort of reaffirmed saying, we don't think there's anything here um, the way we are right now. And so I, I honestly don't know what to make of it. And uh, we had patients calling here saying, uh, Dr. Gordon, I, I have to move my embryos. And I was oh, wow. like, uh, why? She said, well, my friend said, I'm in a red state, so I, I, we need to move our embryos. I was like, um, you know that we're a no-discard facility, right? She said, oh, yeah, I know. That's why we came to you. I said, so you know that we're never going to throw out your embryos, so if you're not going to use them, we're going to put them up for adoption because we won't discard them. She said, oh, yeah, I love it about you guys. And I said, so you guys are planning on coming back? Oh, yeah, we, we absolutely <laughs> are coming back. We, we don't want anything to happen to our embryos. I said, so why are you talking about moving your embryos out of Tennessee? She said, well, it's a red state, and our friend said I have to move them. I said, but that doesn't make any sense. They go, mm -hmm. wait a second, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. I was like, well, exactly. I mean, so so we had some discussions like that, and I, I went on a couple of local uh, television programs here in Knoxville to talk about this issue, and, of course, you go into a long discourse about how I don't see this as being an obvious impact on IVF, and uh, patients seem to be worried unnecessarily about this, and, of course, then the headline is, patients worried. <laughs> of course. Unnecessarily got dropped out. Oh, my now. goodness. Well, you so, bring up a great point. I think the political aspect of it, it, it became very politi um, political immediately. Right. And um, in, in a huge way, this has been used as a red herring to just a, a scare tactic to try to, to push a certain agenda um, when it's really not... Um, as, as, as far as I've seen in every state, there's been no immediate change that has happened legally to fertility treatments in a post-Roe v. Wade reversal. Is, is that your understanding? That's right. I mean, I, I none. And in fact, the issue that I still can't figure out, I guess I, I, mean, I could be cynical and say why I could figure it out, but <laughs> the state of Louisiana, in Louisiana since 1986, it has been against the law to destroy IVF embryos. Since 1986, there are several IVF clinics doing quite well in the state of Louisiana. Mm. So if your boogeyman is that the law is going to come down that IVF embryos can't be destroyed within the confines of your state, then I guess I would say, well, how is it then that Louisiana still has IVF programs that are doing quite well and thriving in helping couples in that environment? Mm. Well, so, and that's since 1986. And, and I think the the common thing that some like states like Nebraska have, um, you know, laws now that they're trying to put in place to say that you cannot destroy anything after conception has begun. So that's where um, how it might impact or change the process of IVF in some states. Um, could potentially be changed. Um, again, it's on a state-by-state -state basis. But in order to even go into that discussion, um, we kind of need to break down for our listeners. You mentioned that you were a no-discard facility. Okay. Um, a lot of people don't understand the, the process of IVF in general. So, um, Dr. Gordon, what do you think pro-lifers need to understand about the general process of IVF? Sure. Well, I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, of course... I'm doing it every day for hours every day, and, you know, the patients tend to be able to repeat my little discourse that I give them after a couple of times and probably hear it in their sleep. But I, I think that you're right. For the listeners, I mean, let's talk about IVF. So IVF came on the scene in 1978 with the birth of Louise Brown. And so in that situation, Dr. Steptoe and Edwards in England 
went ahead and removed the one egg that her mother was about to ovulate. They did a laparoscopic surgery through the belly button. They got the one egg. They put the egg in a dish in an incubator. They put some sperm in with the egg. The egg fertilized the next day. The day after that, they put the embryo back in the uterus, kind of like doing a pap smear, and Mm. just put it in. And nine months later, Louise Brown was born. And that was the world's first test tube baby. It had never been done like that. Now, you could have called it a Petri dish baby, but that didn't really sound very good. (laughs) So they decided that let's call it a test tube baby because when they were collecting the fluid from the follicle, that's the the fluid-filled sac that the egg is in, they collected into a test tube. And test tube baby sounded better than Petri dish baby. (laughs) So um, it was huge news. Summer of 1978, Time Magazine, two cover stories, okay, on IVF. Worldwide newspapers had a countdown clock counting down to her birth. So this is a huge deal. Well, now, 45 years later, I mean, people are sort of blasé about IVF. I mean, a patient would go to a clinic and say, oh, I didn't like that clinic. The nurse was mean. And so I went to this other clinic, but the parking was just atrocious. (laughs) I mean, you had to pay like 10 bucks. And then this other clinic, they gave us a toaster. So we we decided to go there. And, And... You know, that's where we are 45 years later, where people don't really even think twice. But it was a huge deal. Now, the problem is it was hard to do. You had to go through a surgery to get the egg, and sometimes you didn't get the egg or didn't fertilize or didn't grow. So by the late 80s, some changes had happened that made it much more accessible, where you could do the egg removal using a vaginal ultrasound. So you could do that in the office under some sedation. You didn't have to go to the operating room. And then doctors were like, well, you could go after one egg, and we still do a natural cycle IVF here where we go after the one egg, but you, instead doctors started to use mild fertility drugs like Clomid, figuring if you got two to four eggs, then that would be a little bit better. So they went ahead and, and were able to get more eggs. And then they figured out that you could freeze the extra embryos. So if you fertilize that egg and you had four eggs that fertilized and you only want to put back two, um, then you could freeze the other embryo or two if it had developed over the next couple of days, you could freeze it in liquid nitrogen and then come back years later and, and use that frozen embryo. And now the very first frozen embryo baby was, I believe, 1988, and that was in, in uh, Australia, actually. Hmm. So um, then doctors were like, well, okay, that two to four eggs was good, but maybe like 10 or 20 eggs would be better because then we could have a, just a ton of eggs because how could you have too many eggs? And that's where we kind of went a little bit off the rails because we started getting problems where patients had these huge ovaries, and that's called ovarian hyperstimulation because the drugs that we used were these powerful injectable drugs, uh, hormones that they would take. And then um, we would have a bunch of extra embryos. So a couple would jump into IVF, and they would be excited. They got 22 eggs, and they fertilized. And of the 22 eggs, 18 of them fertilized by putting sperm with them, and then as the embryos grew, there were, say, 14 good embryos, and they put back one or two and had a child, and they came back a year or two later and used one or two of their frozen embryos, had another child, then they had, like, a little oops along the way and said, wow, I don't know where that kid came from, and now they have three kids. And then their families complete their mind, and then they freak out because now they have these 12 remaining embryos that they didn't really think about what that would mean. And even people who are not people of faith, when they're confronted with the extra embryos, they give them a little picture of the embryo at transfer, and they look at that picture, and they look at their kid on the playground, and they think, there's 12 of these in that freezer, in that mm. liquid nitrogen tank, and they decompensate, because now the embryos represent something that they never anticipated them representing. And the problem is that sometimes couples 
don't know what to do with those extra embryos. They don't want any more children. They can't bring themselves to destroy them. They don't want to donate for science, which is essentially destroying them. So they just run away. They pretend that the embryos don't exist, and they abandon them. And this happened in England in the late 90s when 3,000 human embryos were abandoned by the couples who created them or the time that they were frozen ran out in terms of the government regulations. And the government said, well, we'll just have to just discard these, mm. these embryos. And across England, they destroyed 3,000 embryos at an appointed time. And that event really ultimately led David Stevens at the Christian Medical and Dental Association to read out, reach out to Dr. Keenan here in Knoxville about starting then this nonprofit that would become the National Embryo Donation Center, giving patients another path, you know, a life-affirming path to do embryo adoption, that they would be able to donate their embryos to couples who are willing to receive these donated embryos for practicing it or setting it up in the best practices of adoption, home study and and stressing openness, and, and it's been very successful. I mean, and that ministry has yielded over uh, 1,300 babies, wow. and uh, we do more of those embryo transfers than any mm. other clinic in the world. Mm. Wow. So I love That's that you all... That's a long answer to your short I question. Love it. <laughs> I that love it. That was a great history. answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that you all partner with the NEDC. Um, your clinic is the one that does those transfers. But what do you do to ensure that on the fertility side of your um, of your clinic that you're not creating more of the problem of all of these additional frozen embryos that we don't know what to do with? How do you um, counsel couples? Right. Great, great question. And, and again, because remember... I mean, what led to the ADC was sort of the creation of all these supernumerary embryos. Mm -hmm. And it would be sort of hypocritical to have the nonprofit trying to help patients who created these embryos and really regretted, you know, having to make this difficult decision about what to do with them if the clinic was creating a bunch of embryos on its IVF side. And so mm -hmm. uh, what we do here. And what Dr. Keenan has always done, and one of the reasons that led me to come from Washington, D.C. down to Knoxville was, first of all, he tells the patients, we're a no-discard facility. So if you've got four embryos that are viable, we don't want to put them all in. Let's put in one or two. Let's freeze one or freeze the other two. But we're not going to throw them out. So if you're not going to use these embryos, then they're going to be put up for adoption. And if you abandon the embryos, then they definitely are going to be put up for adoption. So right up front, the patients are aware of that, and that pretty much, you know, immediately resonates with them um, because they've been struggling with infertility. I mean, they just they just want to have a child, and they, they just will do whatever they're told to do, and we're sort of putting the brakes on. We're saying we need to think about this carefully. And, again, some couples come in with their own uh, understanding of where the limits are. So in other words, I'll say to a couple, well, how do you feel about IVF? And some of them will say, we just are not comfortable with it. You know, we, we're Catholic, and the church teaches that we cannot put egg and sperm together outside the body. We can't do IVF. So I said, okay, that's fine. Then we're going to do non-IVF treatments. We can talk about surgeries. We can talk about um, you know, timed intercourse with fertility drugs. There are options we can do that you're going to be comfortable with. Other couples will say, well, we're okay with the IVF part but we don't want anything frozen. So we don't want any embryos frozen. So then I'll say, well, then we can only fertilize as many eggs as we're comfortable putting back embryos because you're telling me you don't want to freeze any embryos. So in that case, we better only do natural cycle IVF where we fertilize one egg, or maybe we can do a mini IVF with mild fertility drugs and, and maybe fertilize two eggs. But as soon as we get 
fertilizing above three eggs, if you're not going to freeze any embryos and any egg that fertilizes and the embryo grows is going to go back in, and I don't want to give you triplets or quadruplets or octomom or some other (laughs) horrible outcome here, right? So then we're going to talk about limiting how many we fertilize. And then other couples are like, no, no, we're, we're okay fertilizing and then freezing embryos, but, but we agree we only want to, we don't want to create a huge number because we want to have like three children. And, you know, we don't want to have seven. I say, yeah, I totally agree. I have four kids and, you know, I got yeah, seven. My hat's off to people who have seven. We have <laughs> some lovely ADC families who, who have much more than four children. And I'm just like, wow, I mean, you guys are my heroes because I... <laughs> I, I, I couldn't. It's a lot. So, so, so that's what we talk about. And we, we, we talk about it right there, right up front at that first visit. If we talk about IVF, that's what Dr. Keene and I are talking about with our patients. Um, and it saddens me that, that you know, many patients um, reach out. We do these um, telemedicine consultations uh, with patients around the country if they want to talk about these issues, if they're people of faith or not, if they're not people of faith but they still have concerns. And it's just shocking to me that the clinics will just lock down and say, nope, our policy is you have to fertilize everything, you have to take the drugs, no mini IVF, no natural, this is it, take it or leave it, that's what's on the menu. If you want a kid, you have to put up or and just do it. And if you don't, if you have too many embryos, just toss them um, and no, don't worry about it. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> Why would they and stick that, to that? What, what, what would be the point of not offering mini IVF? Um, well, <laughs> I don't know because we, we don't approach it that way. Well, I statistically, mean, I, 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 you have a, a better odds the, the uh, more right. you get, and it looks good at their clinic of, oh, look at our, you know. I guess. <laughs> I think that's part of it, um, you know, in terms of, you know, especially if you're going to do the genetic testing of embryos, which I think is a topic that we might uh, touch on at this point yes. uh, or, or maybe another time, but... I, I think that part of it is also just you're just not used to doing something different. Mm-hmm. You say, this is our protocol. This is what we're used to. You're asking us to do something a little bit different and creative, and we're just not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And my feeling is like, wow, you guys must be so busy. You must my, be the so clinic Eric and I initially reached just, out to, Dr. Gordon, they acted like yeah. it didn't even exist, <laughs> minimal stimulation IVF. Yeah. They mm-hmm. said, what? What are you talking about? I was like, how do I know more about this than you? <laughs> they, ju- they just didn't offer yep. it. But um, you mentioned genetic testing. We only have a few minutes, but could you go into what that is and why your clinic chooses not to um, do that? Right. So um, it's disappointing when, when patients transfer an embryo and they don't get pregnant. I mean, we're always so sad about that outcome for, for the patient or for the, for the embryo that's in the implant. And the question is, what could you do to improve the odds of success? And so the thought process behind genetic testing was, well, maybe the reason embryos don't implant is because they're genetically abnormal. And that seems likely. And if we could test an embryo and find out if it's abnormal and choose not to transfer it, mm. then we wouldn't we, we, we could increase the odds of success by only transferring embryos that were genetically normal. Okay. And you could potentially re- reduce the risk of multiple pregnancy because you could protect, have the, a really good pregnancy rate by transferring one genetically normal embryo versus two untested embryos and running the risk of twins. And that's sort of been the mentality behind it. Now, um, the problem with it is that mm-hmm. 
although we've tried different ways to do the testing, um, some of the large randomized trials had not shown the benefits that we all expected them to show. Right. And that raises the question of why are we not seeing the benefits? Is mm-hmm. it possible that the biopsy itself damages some embryos and now right. makes that embryo that would have been a baby mm. not likely to be a baby because you did the testing to prove it was going to be mm. a baby? Mm-hmm. Or is it possible the testing is not accurate? Mm. And I, I sent you a article from Fertility and Sterility Reports that came out last month where an embryo was genetically tested and what we're talking about are chromosome testing. So in other words, right. a normal person has 46XX if it's a woman or 46XY if it's a man. Mm. And um, in this case, you know, extra chromosome 21 is Down syndrome. Right. Extra chromosome 13, mm. 18, 16, all associated with bad outcomes. And this embryo had been tested and found to have six abnormalities, called to be a chaotic profile. So there were so many genetic problems that... It wasn't even just one chromosome that was missing or one extra copy. It was just a mm-hmm. mess. Well, that that patient decided to transfer the embryo, and the clinic agreed to do it. And then nine months later, delivered a healthy baby boy. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Dr. oh my Gordon, goodness. We're going to have to wrap up, but we would love to have you back on on a future day to go more into genetic testing. That's a topic we have not talked about no. and is so important. So important. Like, yeah. praise the Lord for a healthy baby right there. Yes, right? <laughs> oh, I know. It's well, shocking. It's thank- shocking. And, and as much as Jeff and I are open to these things, you know, mm. boy, that, that was surprising to us. Mm. Real quick, if someone wants to connect with your um, facility, how can they contact you? Well, it's like everything else. Like We're online, so just uh, www.southeasternfertility.org and, um, you know, and, and for the NDC, uh, everyconfation.org. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're easily uh, located online. Awesome. Thank you so much, and thank you guys for listening to Hannah's Heart on American Family Radio.